I know this is a giant part of my artistic history, but working in spite of something or some force. For lack of a better phrase, proving people wrong. Hey there, and welcome back to the Why I'll Never Make It podcast, featuring insightful stories and conversations with fellow artists on the realities of a career in the entertainment industry. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and to find out more about Why I'll Never Make It, or Win Me for short, go to the website, winmepodcast.com. Today's episode is one of those that really gets to the heart of why this podcast exists and the reason for the conversations that we have and for its title. There's a lot that stands in the way of us making it, of us being successful. And today's guest, Misha Oshorovich, is one of those that he has a story to tell that is riveting, insightful, it's poignant, as well as enlightening. Even though his issue is very specific, it's something that we can all learn from, no matter what we deal with in our lives. Misha is a Russian-born actor, if you couldn't tell from his name. He's also a, a filmmaker. He's a mental health and LGBTQ activist. And I first saw Misha when I went to go see the off-Broadway production of Clockwork Orange just a couple of years ago at New World Stages in New York. And he was definitely one of the standouts in that production. And so I have been following him on Instagram for the past couple of years. And this past August, he had a post that really stuck out to me. And this was actually the reason why I reached out to him for the first time, introduced myself, and wanted to bring him on the podcast. And this is what he said in that post. Recently, I've had to ask myself, why am I in this industry? It's easy to fall into the trap, especially in the entertainment industry. If I'm beautiful or impressive or physically desirable enough, I will be happy. I fall into this trap more than I'd like to admit. It's one of the biggest triggers that launches me into my eating disorder thoughts. To be clear, I'm not shaming anyone who wants to celebrate their physical beauty in a public way. I think that's brilliant. It's when we start to punish our bodies, self-hating, comparing, and obsessing over achieving beauty goals in an unhealthy way that I take issue. Misha goes on to talk about the photo in this Instagram post and how it was taken during a time when he was able to tell a story about being queer, struggling with eating disorder, and he was able to marry his passion for mental health and LGBTQ awareness into this beautiful night of storytelling. He goes on to say, Moments like this are why I'm in the industry, to celebrate how awesome it is to be an imperfect human. I tell stories, my own, and other artists, and I aim to see a million more moments like this in my future, moments where I get to celebrate the art of telling important stories, not obsess over physical appearance. That's where the work that matters comes from, art that comes from honesty and grit and a real human experience, not image shaming and warped beauty contests. Now, will vanity and beauty always be a part of this industry? Absolutely but it won't be the driving force behind the work I do. If anything, I look forward to making a ton of art, which artists can respect, that give a sensible F.U. to body shaming and the self-hating culture. 
And this post really resonated with me. Anyone who has been an actor, a dancer, a singer, even even behind the table, we're all being watched. We're all being critiqued and judged. And are you good enough? Are you hip enough? Are you inventive enough? What Whatever criteria that people have to judge us, they will judge us. And body image is certainly one of those that, do you look young enough? As we get older, we keep trying to maintain our youth. When someone's younger, they want to start playing older roles. There's always this tug of war with our age, with our beauty, with our physical appearance, our size. And he really got to the crux of at least this specific issue and his own battle with eating disorder. And so because of this post, I wanted to bring him on to specifically talk about this issue. Misha himself is an actor, a writer, and producer. In fact, his latest short film, Every Day, is currently screening at festivals internationally. And the film is, is rather autobiographical because it was written and produced by him. And it really takes an inside look into the minds of people that are affected by eating disorders and a distorted body image. And he aims to use his platform that he's created uh, both on stage and on screen and on social media to speak frankly and openly about body image and eating disorder recovery from the perspective of, of the entertainment industry, which is what he's a part of, as well as the intersection between queerness and mental health. The conversation you're about to hear runs the gamut of topics within the confines of body image and how we see ourselves. And we start off, as we all start off, with our family. Our family is where we come from. It's who raises us. It's where we get the ideas and impressions and the passions that we eventually grow into and find ourselves. Misha, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having and me. And for coming to my home. Yes, even, and which is it. such a far track. I live literally <laughs> a block away. Right. I'm, I'm finding a lot of us actor folk, there's either Brooklyn or it's kind of Washington Heights. Those seem to be the extremes yeah, where people live now. It's, it's that and maybe a little bit of a story, but you truly, I mean, I certainly bought into the myth when I when I moved to the city a couple years ago after school, like all the actors live in Harlem or Washington Heights. That's where we live. And well, there's something about being in Manhattan. Yeah. Your, your address is New York. New York. Exactly. And so I, I do kind of like that. I mean, Queens, New York is fine. Brooklyn, New York is fine. Sure. And admittedly, I do love Brooklyn. I'm kind of sad that I didn't move to Brooklyn, but um, I'm here and I, I like the neighborhood. I like that it's a bit quieter. There's mm-hmm. some there's some amount of peace that you can achieve, sort of. It's New York. So yeah. Well, speaking of, of coming to the city, your name is obviously very Russian. Mm-hmm. And so your parents came here from Russia in the 70s, I yes. believe. Yeah. And what brought them here? So my parents are both, uh, they're scientists, and they both actually came from slightly bougie Russian families. So they're pretty well known, both of them individually, my mother's family and my father's. And there were Jewish as well. So we're Russian Jewish, not just Russian. And my parents lived in Soviet Russia, which being Jewish was, it still was a problem in Russia, but it was much more of a problem then. Right. And so both families individually actually experienced quite a bit of um, discrimination. Um, my mom has this story where her father is, uh, was a prominent Russian lawyer or Jewish lawyer. Um, and the government in an effort to sabotage him and his life, uh, 
changed my mom's exam times at Moscow University without telling her, hoping that she would show up late enough that she wouldn't be able to take the test and would not pass her first year at Moscow University. Wow. She showed up um, because she's my mom, so she shows up hours early. They say, oh, Elena, you know, you, your exam is almost over. You missed your time. And she goes, let me take it. They go, it's a four-hour exam and you have less than two hours to take it. She takes it, passes, immediately moves to Israel. And then from Israel went to the U.S. But she, just to make a point, passes the exam and then she's like, I'm done with Russia. Goodbye. Well, well, at least she was able to leave. That's yeah. That's good. It's true. And that my parents both left during that very famous initial wave of um the of russian history when they were allowing people to first start leaving the soviet union okay yeah so they moved to the u.s and did you grow up as a russian jew yourself did they instill that culture and that heritage absolutely culture and heritage we i did not grow up religious um my mother because she moved to israel and lived there for 10 years and had my half brother there um she uh, the jewish heritage and culture is very important to her regardless of religion um, but I was not bar mitzvahed, neither was my, my sister was in bat mitzvahed, but we grew up with a respect for, uh, Jewish heritage and just an understanding that the opportunity for my mom to leave Russia and go to Israel and live amongst very supportive Jewish, you know, friends and family in Israel for 10 years was so important mm-hmm. to her, you know, coming of age and becoming a, an adult outside of her home country that I've, I think I'll always have a respect for the Jewish side of culture. But I identify as Russian more so, and my parents have a deep love and respect for Russian history and culture. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, your name certainly stands out, and so and so it's hard not to kind of associate the the Russian ancestry with you. Yes, indeed. Um, and arguably, um, speaking Russian and being a Russian heritage is one of the only reasons that I'm I at least initially started working in TV and film, um, because Americans are fascinated with Russian culture, and I think there will always be Russian characters popping up. Yeah, yeah, because whether it was during the cold war or then you know once the wall came down and Mm -hmm. then the cold war was kind of we were trying to figure out what is the u.s russia relationship Mm -hmm. and now of course russia's even bigger with their influence on our own elections and this and that so it's always been this back and forth between our two countries absolutely and it's you know not to get too ahead of us or myself but uh the next film that i'm producing has very much to do with my russian heritage and how being queer um intersects with that so i think (laughs) russia's history is both beautiful and amazing and also has is so fraught with deep rooted problems yeah yeah so, and arguably, that's why so many amazing artists come out of Russia, because they've lived under some form of oppression. And, you know, who isn't going to create beautiful art when you're constantly thinking about the meaning of life and how either oppressed or, you know, problematic your society is. Yeah, I think for all of us as artists that, you know, we certainly love the successes and, mm-hmm. and the wonderful things that come along with being it. But when we hit those roadblocks, those setbacks, it does kind of propel us to a, a, a different level. Maybe not be a higher level, who knows, but it's definitely a different level of of how we express ourselves and the kind of art we create. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think there's something to be said for, and I know this is a giant part of my artistic history, but working in spite of something or some force. For lack of a better phrase, proving people wrong. Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, maybe that's me being a little shit. <laughs> well, that's, that's always just fun anyway, <laughs> regardless of any art form. <laughs> sure. I'm very proud of the culture that I come from. And as I, for example, work on this, even this next film, I interviewed my parents as I was starting to research um, mm. this next film. And it's, um, I'm really interested to see where my Russian heritage and culture leads me, especially working on a film where I'm playing a Russian character now for the second time. Um, 
it's uh it's starting to weave itself into my artistry too growing up with with the russian heritage and the jewish heritage behind you how did the arts interweave in both of those so it's fascinating because my parents are both scientists as are um to some extent all of my siblings at least are very technical um so you're the black sheep. I, the blackest of sheep. <laughs> <laughs> I am the queer one, the artist, the, oh goodness, all the things. But, um, discipline and artistic discipline or any discipline really was wildly important in my household. Education above all else mm. was what my parents instilled in all of the kids. I started piano lessons at, I believe, four. Um, I started singing lessons shortly after that. Um, and it was demanded of me that I approach them with a rigor. Um, just like I was supposed to be getting straight A's in high-level classes at school. So all of the later developments of me wanting to be an artist professionally might have, you know, ca- did cause a good amount of tension in, in my very kind of um, technically-minded parents. But a respect for the arts, I grew up going to opera with my parents regularly. I grew up going to classical music concerts with them. Did your siblings also get that same piano lessons yeah. at school and, mm-hmm. and, and that kind of thing? We all had to play, I think, two instruments. I played flute and um, piano. Um, I showed uh, more enthusiasm than anything else, but my boy soprano voice was, I'm not going to lie, amazing. So I... Oh, I was a boy soprano until ninth grade. and I, I held on to it as long as I could. That's impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, my 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 voice changed to this <laughs> quickly. <laughs> um, yeah, you're not a voice soprano anymore. No, not no, 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 not. No. Um, once they realized that that was where my at the time I was quite passionate about it, my parents really didn't give it a second thought in terms of pushing me to excel in it. So I found myself in the most prestigious um, children's chorus in DC. Um, we perform. I did a you know a two week tour of Italy with that chorus when I was a boy soprano. Oh. I sang with Washington Washington National Opera in uh, one of their professional productions in the children's chorus, and so being on stage has been with you for a long time. Yes, yeah. But there was a giant break. There was a I I was artistically minded and performative as a child, and then life happened, and adulting happened, and growing up happened, and I had no uh, concept that maybe later in life I'd be performing or be an artist. Now, you mentioned that your your parents were certainly supportive as you were learning these instruments mm-hmm. and going to the operas and that. But then once you decided, oh, now I think I want to study this and do it professionally, there was some resistance to that? Yes. Um, I, and sort of just to like get into it, I, I around, you know, 14, uh, I became a pretty bad kid like i rebellion just Mm. straight up rebellion running away from home um i got i managed to get kicked out of two public high schools um in a row in the same year (laughs) which is tough to do these days because public schools will just take anyone yes oh no yeah (laughs) i I was i if i was going to excel i was going to excel at everything including messing up i guess um so i was just and i would say a lot of this had to do with my queer identity i because that re- that was right around the time when I was really grappling with, oh, I this is a part of me, and I'm I'm definitely gay. I'm definitely queer. These are things that they were brewing quite heavily at the time. Mm. And um, no discredit to my parents at all, but again, they come from Soviet Russia, where it's. I mean, we know now. Even we see the way that Russia is interacting with um, their queer citizens at the moment it's it's very problematic yeah i mean because i I visited a few times st petersburg you're lucky that's amazing yeah and so it it is definitely part of they just don't acknowledge it they don't at all it's and trust me i know i i'll never forget this one moment that it was burned into my memory i must have been like 
five, maybe four. I um I needed I got LASIK, but I needed very thick like nerdy Harry Potter glasses even as a baby. I yeah. I was uh one and a half points away from legally blind. Oh wow! Yeah, it was nuts. Um, but we were at the beach as a family, and my uh, I I don't have my glasses on because we don't want them to get lost in the ocean. But I see a boat with one of those uh banners on it, like a an advertisement. And I asked my dad, what does it say? And my dad uh, turns and looks at the boat and says, best, his voice changes utterly, dancing at the beach and walks away. And I'm like something on that sign clearly affected him. So I sprint back to the towel, get my glasses. And that was the moment when I first saw the word gay. Best gay dancing on the beach was this advertisement. Hmm. The mention of the word gay, the idea of these people being real uh, scared my parents so much that it, they couldn't even say it to me. Um, Interesting. And that it, I'm, I don't think there's ever been a moment more, especially with my dad, that I, it's been so indicative of how they've been raised to approach mm-hmm. um, queers in general. And I grew up in the South, mm-hmm. which is very similar. It's, I mean, they, they certainly acknowledge that it happens, but they acknowledge it in a way that, well, that's not how we do things. Mm. You know, it's, it's like, yes, you may feel that way, but you need to make this other choice. It's more of something to acknowledge, but change, hmm. you know? Gotcha. And, and so, and so for me, it was 13 ish whenever I started realizing my feelings for same sex mm-hmm. attraction. And it was one of those that was just like, Oh, I, I I shouldn't be having this, and so I just kind of kept it hidden, kept it underneath. And it immediately so I, felt like a problem. Right, right. It felt like a problem that yeah. I need to deal with, and I need to change this and not and not give in to it. You know, so mm. it, in in some way, it's it, it was very similar in in the way that I grew up, and it but it wasn't anything that I spoke to my mother about at all. Mm. You know, for so sure. It, it was just something that I kept inside and tried to to deal with on my own Isn't and that not the let story? anyone <laughs> not let anyone know about it which sure. you know you you're, you're going to look at a guy too long something's going to happen and and people are going to start to are, are are you looking at me what 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 and then and it's like no 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 I'm I'm and then I just run away no it's oh gosh um I don't know I'm very happy I mean ob- you know obviously I, I I that aspect of myself I I love quite dearly I've been really embracing the the queer community and the, um, I, I recently was chatting with somebody and I'm stealing this from them, but, um, being queer is being in the other and celebrating being in the other. Mm. And that really was one of the more recent light bulbs that I, whether it's with, um, gender fluidity or with uh, who you're attracted to, how you identify, uh, as a human, there's so many aspects to being queer that are just, they, they are again, celebrating being in the other. And once I latched onto that, I truly think I found my at peace situation with being queer. I think it was that kind of final puzzle piece of right then. I am in some ways uh, an other category in society, and that's amazing. That just means I'm that much more of a unique, different perspective human in culture and society. How awesome is that? And I think that's a big reason why why there's such an LGBT community in the arts mm. because the arts are already kind of this other thing because every, you know, the, the, the nine to fivers or, or maybe you do sports or, you know, mm-hmm. business or the, those things are understood and seen and people have that in their lives no matter who they are. But the Absolutely. arts is something other. It's something different that it's a different way of, of thinking and whether you're a dancer, whether you're a singer, it's a way of expressing ourselves that I don't think most people understand. Well, there's no rule book. 
They're, and, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, yeah, that's true. And it's completely <laughs> unique for the individual. Yeah, absolutely. I, and that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think also there's something to be said for, again, the oppression thing of when you as a, a person or as a group of people feel oppressed or kicked to the outside of society, I think one of the natural human inclinations is to create. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that some of the most beautiful artwork that we know today comes from queer individuals. And, and that oppression that you speak of is actually what kind of sparked this need and want to talk to you more about mm. it, because it was something that you brought up. And, and the very first question was that recently you've been asking yourself, why are you in this industry? Why mm -hmm. are you in the arts? And what prompted you to ask yourself that question? It's been kind of a perfect storm of things. So I've been... I don't even like to say lucky, but I'm fortunate to work on some more commercially viable projects in TV and film and on stage too. And it's been amazing. And that's afforded me the opportunity to then start producing my own work. So naturally, when you start to produce your own work, and for me, it was a short film at first um, about eating disorders, um, which is something that I'm, it's a cause and a, an issue that is very close to me. It's something that I've gone through. It's something that I'm actively in recovery from. And I guess thinking about producing my own work, I'm really building my own identity as an artist. You start to ask yourself when you get either down or maybe not loving your body so much. And I know that I went through a bit of a, a dip in sort of my body image and self-esteem recently. And those dips happen. Mm -hmm. I just found myself the, the day of that post asking legitimately, why am I doing this? I was particularly stressed out about how I looked for a certain audition on camera. It was messing with my acting. I could tell that my acting was not as strong, my work was not as strong as I'd like it to be because I was stuck in my head with the comparison monster, yeah. the, um, the am I beautiful enough, am I good enough, tall enough, thin enough, whatever those enoughs are. Yeah. Those demons were eating me more than they had been in a long time that day. And... I mean, the wonderful thing about social media with all of the evils that come with it is that you're able to, um, oh, I heard this recently and it was so good. Um, journal as if it's your diary, but with knowing that you are actually putting it out into the world for people to see, interact with, and hopefully like or resonate with. So in the spirit of that, I, I wrote the post and it, it just, it was a good reminder, honestly, for myself that. I love the creative process. I love uh, creating work that I believe matters. And I love telling stories that I believe will have a social impact, um, whether it has to do with my queer identity, um, my relationship to body image eating disorders and addiction. If I get to spend the rest of my life creating, telling, and promoting those stories in an effort to have those conversations with people that both understand deeply and people that are hearing about these things for the first time, mm -hmm. I'm, I will be a happy human. And that was the spirit of, in which I wrote the post, um, was trying to honestly remind myself that that's why I'm doing this. Even when those comparison green with envy, you know, awful monsters that are in all of us, when they pop up, it was kind of a recentering. Yeah. If that makes sense. For me, I've not suffered through eating disorders or had that, but I definitely know about body image mm -hmm. and not liking what I see in the mirror and think back to five, 10 years ago, you know, why can I look like that? Sure. Or why can I look like this person? As you said, the comparison game is, is very real in this industry. Mm -hmm. And it, it is one of those things that 
that I have to remind myself. And also one thing that I love about being specifically in theater is that there, there is a place for all of us. It doesn't matter your size, your mm-hmm. skin color, your gender. There is a place, there is a role for each of us. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and I love that now, over the, especially the last couple of years, yeah. I love now that there's more voices coming out. And with that, more roles and opportunities for people to, you know, maybe there's a larger person that, that's going to have this pivotal role in a play or a person of color or a woman, transgender, all these different stories and things that can happen now in theater. Well, there's stories that haven't been told at length or in detail before. Yeah. And it's, that's what I love about the time that we're in. It's a really exciting time to be in this industry. Like, truly, I mean that without any reservation, whether it's with diversity, representation, um, the kinds of stories that are being told, the way they're being told. Yeah. It's that much messier and more real and more reflective of the world that we actually live in. Mm-hmm. It's really exciting to me. Yeah. I'm really glad to be kind of making my way in this industry at this time. I mean, certainly... Politics has always played a part, and, and the arts has always been kind of in that tug of war with the politics of the day. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that's always going to be the case. And sometimes I, I don't like to be preached to in certain shows. Sure. But I think that one thing that I, I think, and hopefully we can all agree on, is that the individual stories of a person, beyond politics, and, and when you get down to what is what is a person doing, what are they feeling, and what is their story that they're going through, we should all be able to listen to that and resonate with that. And to me, that's the the central element of what the arts can do, whether you're dancing it, whether you're singing it, or acting it. It humanizes people. Mm-hmm. It humanizes the, it, it humanizes characters that maybe you wouldn't have thought you could relate to. Mm-hmm. And it brings, at the end of the day, a giant audience of all kinds of different people together to view that story. And I well, you know, that's amazing. It's theater. <laughs> and how have you personally used the arts? You, you talk about this film that you're working on. How have you used it to tell your own story and hopefully resonate with others? Sure. Um, so the film is called Every Day. Um, it's uh, the tagline is a day inside the minds of two individuals living with active eating disorders. And I um it, it was, insp- it was very much, it's very much autobiographical. It's myself and my co-producer and classmate Angelica Santiago, um, who also has her own struggles with um, eating disorders and is now actively in recovery as well. We found each other in school. We were showcase partners and um, it, it was a very natural progression towards both being very passionate about our individual stories with eating disorders and wanting to tell that story. But funnily enough, the inspiration for the film was actually anti-inspiration. Um, I've coined that phrase, and I don't know if it's at all useful to anybody besides me. <laughs> but um, uh, with respect to all filmmakers out there who are, are making content about mental health, I want to make that very clear. I saw uh, recently a Netflix film called To the Bone. And it's with Lily Collins, who does a phenomenal job in it. Um, wonderful actress. But the film, unfortunately, in my opinion... Uh, glamorized eating disorders, which oh, naturally, yeah. naturally you run the risk whenever you put something on stage or on screen, you do run the risk of glamorizing it by virtue of it being on a stage. Yeah. And that I understand. But I mean, I mean, it's the same thing that goes along with, you know, naming the, the people with these mass shootings. It's sure. like putting their picture up, naming them, and it, it you're kind sen- of sensationalizing it. Yeah, there's yeah. a certain celebrity absolutely that comes with that. So, so, so you're right. Anytime something's in the public eye, then it kind of perks people up to that particular issue. Exactly. Um, so it's a, especially with issues like mental health, it's a fine line for sure. But I really felt 
watching that film and having seen other content, limited content about um, eating disorders in the past, I had yet to see myself in those stories on screen, in books that I read while I was in treatment. It, I never felt like I saw myself and the messy, uh, hard to chew on, very gray area human aspect of eating disorders. They are not clean cut. They're an incredibly insidious mental um, illness. And uh, I felt very kind of driven, talk about in spite of things, very driven to make content, make something, make in this case a film, about how I saw this disorder, how it really pervades every part of somebody's life. I mean, maybe it's hard to answer, but how did that start to affect you? Like, can you think of a time or a moment when you started to see yourself in a certain way and eating or not eating was the only way to solve it? So I, one thing that I love and that I, I learned in treatment, one of the things that I kind of took away from um, going through treatment was genetics loads the gun, environment pulls the trigger. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the capacity to develop an eating disorder, I think is quite uh, built into some people. Um, to an extent, and it's all about much like addictions. Ex- Some people have more addictive personalities. Absolutely, and I I firmly believe that eating disorders are an addiction, and in a lot of ways should be treated like an addiction. I mean, here's the problem: abstinence is not an option for eating disorders. You can um, you can take uh, a bag of X Y Z drugs away from an addict. You can't take an eating disorder away from somebody who has an eating disorder. Nor can you avoid food because it's a basic human need. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I am a very type A individual. Um, being in control makes me happy and it makes me feel like I understand what's going on in the world. So right around when I was struggling with coming to terms with my queer identity, um, right around when I was becoming a full-fledged teenager, um, and I grew up, I was, you know, unashamedly, my doctors will attest to this, quite a chubby kid. Um, you know, I, I kept the baby fat on for quite a while and same here. Yep. (laughs) I mean, how we, how we move through the world in our bodies inevitably becomes part of our identity. And I was the kind of, for lack of a better way of saying it, fat friendly kid with the glasses next door. That was what I grew up with. And something really, a switch flipped uh, at 14 for me and I decided that I wanted to make a change and that I wanted to shift my identity. I wanted to lose some weight, get healthier. And it was all in an effort to get both uh, physically healthier and, you know, aesthetically more pleasing, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and being me, being the extremist that I am, I definitely fell over into the unhealthy side of things. And it devolved pretty quickly into an obsession. Um, and I developed all kinds of unhealthy behaviors around um, eating or not eating. Um, I had a very distorted relationship with exercise. I used it as a, a purging method to try to rid myself of any food that I'd eaten. And without getting too triggering and detailed in how I interacted with my eating disorder, it became the primary focus of my life. And I do believe that one really good way to gauge if you have disordered eating or distorted relationship with food in your body is if it m- occupies the majority of your brain space, food and your image and um, relationships to both your body and food, then I think that is something that needs to be addressed. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the same with, with any addiction. Mm-hmm. If, it, if it's something that in the quiet moments, it's what you think of first, mm-hmm. then it's probably something that 
Yeah, that, that you're obsessed with. Right. I um, In the very first article that I wrote for National Eating Disorders Association, um, this is um, more recently, but I, I describe it as if you take one of those vibrating back massagers, you know, like the little handheld ones that kind of look like a little squid right, yeah. that you get at CVS or something, um, put it on the back of your head, turn it on, say medium, it's vibrating constantly, and then duct tape it around your jaw like a kind of messed up birthday hat. It's always in the back of your head. It's always vibrating. And sometimes it's stronger, sometimes it's weaker, but it's a voice that's always there. It's almost like a second brain. Mm -hmm. And that is very much what happened to me. That combined with um, some drug issues growing up and, um, you know, after a certain point with malnourishment, your brain starts to not function correctly. So I was running away. I had a, a very problematic older boyfriend. I'm all these things culminated in me getting kicked out of two public schools. And then I entered residential treatment for the next few years, all the way through high school. Um, so talk about the, I mean, the gap that I would. Yeah, where, where you were doing artistic things and then your, I mean, your, every, your brain took over and you started focusing on other things. Yeah, I mean, everything stopped. Yeah. Everything stopped to the point that the only goal at the time was to not even trying to be dramatic keep me alive and to get me through high school or high school age in some way shape or form now was it one of those things where you recognized the problem or was it one of those where you you thought you were doing the right thing and 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 other people had to kind of show you you know it really was the latter um which is strange to say now because it just goes to show you how much the, an addiction can affect and change your brain. But I went kicking and screaming into these treatment centers. You know, mm-hmm. everybody was against me. Nobody would let me do what I want. I just wanted to be with my boyfriend and have my, I didn't even call it an eating disorder. I called it the way I wanted to live. There was mm-hmm. no name for it for me. Yeah. I, you, nothing in my, and Misha's mind at the time, nothing was wrong. Um, As you say, you went kicking and streaming to to this treatment mm-hmm. to to getting uh, you know to getting help that you didn't think you needed Mm-mm. um was it working what was what you were doing working and that's why you wanted to hold on to it yes in its own way yes um we i needed those coping mechanisms at the time because for whatever reason they were uh, keeping me safe happy um but they, they're not sustainable, obviously. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was my armor. It was my thing that I could control. It was something that, you know, maybe if I just hold on to this amount of control and just eat this much or just exercise this much, then I will be honestly worthy enough. I will be worthwhile enough to live my life and do the things that I want to do. Um. Your self-worth gets completely tied up into it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, whether it's looking in the mirror, whether it's looking at your resume, so much of what we do and see can affect the value that Mm -hmm. we put on ourselves. And, you know, you you go through 50 auditions and none of them get a callback. Then you start to self-doubt. You You start start to to, internalize (laughs) it. You start to go, what's wrong with me? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and I think that 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 question, what's wrong with me? Is this is a question that each of us as as actors, performers, as artists that we have. And whenever you asked yourself that question, what was the answer that kept coming back to you? I guess 
I don't necessarily know that I framed it as what's wrong with me. I, it was something to do with, again, worth, self-worth. Am I worthy? Um, you know, unfortunately, society um, has a giant beauty complex and we value and praise and raise up those people that fall into an aesthetically uh, commercially beautiful category. And that's mm -hmm. not something that's ever going to change about humanity, which is why I kind of quite like the work that I'm doing, especially on the mental health side of things. Because like you saw in the post, you can't... <laughs> Everybody should absolutely find a way to love themselves and their bodies exactly as they are. That being said, this industry is, but, uh, among other things, incredibly visual. So there's always going to be an element of comparison, an element of competition when it comes to pure aesthetics. Yeah. And that's, it's a nightmare, but it's also something that I do believe people can approach healthily. But I will, I'll say this to hopefully slightly more answer your question. The last thing, in my opinion, an eating disorder is about is food. And for me, I found power, control, worth, and um, accomplishment in executing this insane voice in my head's commands when it came to my eating disorder. Um, so it goes beyond looking in the mirror. It goes beyond um, a certain weight or goal or aesthetic. It's this thing that you can be really good at and that rewards you with this kind of very messed up warm hug of accomplishment. Mm. And it is different for everybody. It yeah. really is. But um, I've found that in recovery, the hardest thing to do and the most rewarding thing to do, especially say if an audition doesn't go well, or if somebody gets a role that maybe I feel is, you know, aesthetically, who knows, more XYZ than me. I find that sitting in those difficult moments, um, pushing through any um, urges and thoughts I have to engage with my eating disorder and asking myself, what am I feeling and how can I move forward in life and find love for myself again without engaging with my eating disorder? Those are the moments that I grow. Those are the moments that are good for me, good for my art, good for my mental health. Um, so I don't have to numb myself or engage with this addictive behavior. Instead, I get to sit with myself quite uncomfortably, but learn about myself. Yeah, I think that's a, what a lot of people run from. We run from ourselves as, as much as we can. And it sounds like a lot of what you had to come to terms with was, was self-love, self-care, and really taking a look inward at yourself as far as how can I find the worth? How can I find the love and the care for myself? that really no one else can provide. Because, I mean, especially in this industry, I'm not going to book every audition I go to. I'm not going to get that affirmation, you're a great artist, you can do this, you're a wonderful singer. I'm not going to get that. No. I'm going to get <laughs> silence. Yeah. And silence is, is deafening when it comes to, we just want to be cast, you know? Yeah, well, again, that, that goes to self-worth too. I mean, mm -hmm. I, the reality of this industry, it's wildly competitive. But, I mean, I walk into audition rooms sometimes feeling like, you know, you can't touch me. This is my work. And if you like it, amazing. And if you don't, also fine. That's kind of, you know, the money. And then there's the other side where I've definitely walked into audition rooms where I don't feel worthy enough to be there. I'm doubting myself. And everybody has their own version of that. But it's just, it's, I think it's just shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah. I mean, who, 
in any job interview, if you walk in and already going, well, I don't deserve this job, then... Then who else is going to think that? Yeah. You know, who else is going to think you're worthy if, exactly. if you don't? Exactly. Yeah. But that's a journey that everybody has to come to differently. And it manifests itself in, in many different ways. You mm -hmm. know, I didn't have an eating disorder, but I know I've done emotional eating. Mm -hmm. I know I've had a crappy day, so I have a whole pizza yep. to myself. Yep. You know, I order Domino's and I just yes, sit there Domino's. and eat the whole thing. <laughs> you know, but and, and then there are those times where I'm feeling big and then I don't eat the whole day. You know, and yeah. it's, it's gone different ways. And then whether it's uh, porn, whether it's anything, we, we all have these salves yeah. that, that we can latch on to. And sometimes it's our relationship. Like our relationship means everything. My mm -hmm. husband, my girlfriend, whoever it is, is everything. And that's what's going to give me my value. Validation, value. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But making the film about eating disorders was, I mean, it was incredibly cathartic in some ways that I could absolutely predict. But what it's honestly forced me to do is talk about this thing that we're talking about right now. Yes. What does it mean to have an eating disorder and be in recovery? But what does it mean to address it through art? I made a film about it. I produced mm. it. I garnered other people's money to make this visual 13-minute thing that addresses an eating disorder through artistic expression. And I do believe that the film accomplished everything I wanted it to, which is that it is unapologetic. It's messy. It's a gray area. It, it raises a lot of questions, which good. I want people to ask questions about this particular disease. I want people to want to understand it more. And hopefully see either themselves or somebody that they love in some aspect of the film. Because it's incredibly human, um, these two individuals in the film that are going through an eating disorder. But I got to use my art to talk about it. I got to use a medium and a skill set that I've been training for years to, you know, hone in on. Mm -hmm. And then talk about an issue that means, means everything to me. It's, it's a giant part of my identity. It's a giant part of my growth. And distorted relationships to food in our body is something that a lot of people struggle with, especially in today's society, mm -hmm. in or outside of this industry. Yeah, absolutely. So it's been incredibly gratifying to use my art to talk about something that means so much to me. And how exactly has being an actor, being a performer, how has it helped in, in some way, this, this eating disorder that, that you've been struggling with? Um, here's the thing. I'm a homework human. I'm a, I'm a work ethic human. I like to know that I've put in the hours, the time, the mental energy, the physical energy to do my best possible work, my, the best job I can. And among other things, I've learned that engaging with my eating disorder um, is harmful to my mind my body. And especially, honestly, as I get older, I'm not resilient like I used to be. Like, if I don't treat myself well, my work is not very good. My art is not mm. very good. And I I'm also I also don't get inspired because that evil little voice of the eating disorder is buzzing in my head. So art and acting and now producing and writing and all that has been a way for me to, to hone in on a skill, to work tirelessly sometimes you know, to my detriment, um, towards these artistic goals, these professional goals. And every step of the way, I'm made painfully aware that if I slide back into eating disorder land, into addiction land, I'm getting farther from my goals, not closer to them. Mm. Um, so sometimes it's as directly as making a movie about eating disorders, but 
before auditions, I am sleeping, I am hydrating, I am going to the gym uh, to, to activate and celebrate my muscles, not to um, not to punish myself for having eaten something the day before. There's all kinds of self-care that's built into how I approach acting and how I approach artistic work that I, without sounding too cheesy, I believe that being an artist has saved my life yeah. in, in, a, in a very kind of concrete way. Well, it sounds like it was a perspective shift. Eating disorder had this one element of control and it had this one goal, but you've come to realize that pursuing that goal eliminates this larger goal in your life, which mm -hmm. is to be this artist, to be a performer, to continue to work and to be the best you can be. Absolutely. And I also think that for those of us out there that rightfully so see an eating disorder as a pursuit of something aesthetic which i obviously there's many more layers to it than that right I, I, that's probably like the surface the, yeah generally it's and the it's surface so layer of what you're looking at and it's but, easy to see you yeah. know when something's in front of us obviously we engage with it in a more simple way as opposed to digging deeper mm -hmm. but let's call it what it is you know the pursuit of some kind of beauty whatever that beauty means to you my career is pursuit of beauty and i i, th I think i wrote this in that post i'm in the business of living a beautiful life and telling beautiful stories. Sometimes beautiful stories are messy, they're painful, they're hard, they're um, or sometimes they're joyous and celebratory. They're all of the above. Just like so many different kinds of humans are beautiful, just like so many different kinds of art are is are beautiful. The pursuit of that beauty is has become far more important to me than anything remotely aesthetic or eating related. Yeah. And that is where I believe my eating disorder now sits in relationship to my professional life and my artistic life. It sounds like that while traumatic and really a terrible thing to go through, but you've come out on the other side of it, that the eating disorder and that knowledge and that history with it has propelled your own artistic expression and your own journey into the, into performing. I'd say so. Yes. Um, certainly the, a giant element clearly of why I make art is to I guess, address that part of me. Mm -hmm. But there's also, uh, there's also an element of, um, I don't know, embracing life as a whole. And eating disorder and eating disorder thoughts are such a small section of life. And I've been able, I've been lucky enough to zoom out and see so much more, again, beautiful, but also uh, more expansive parts of life, whether it's travel, friends, romance, acting career, whatever it is, it's outside of my own head. And I get to engage with I'm I have the privilege of engaging with that. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And that's, um, that's where I hope I continue to go and go in that direction. But I always say this recovery for me is active. I'm actively in recovery. Right. I didn't have an eating disorder. I have one. Just um, And I therefore work every day, <laughs> the title of my film, um, <laughs> to maintain my recovery. And when I have slip up, some big, some small, like the day that I wrote that post, it's my job to build myself back up with my healthy coping skills and get back on the horse. So it's interesting as you were saying that it, it made me think about the different voices that are that are in our head, the different critics that we have. And it sounds like that you, you know, the eating disorder used to be a really big voice. Mm -hmm. And then you found other voices to 
not not drowned it out because you know it's as you said still a part of you, mm-hmm. but they became bigger and more important voices that you listen to. And I think each of us have to find those those healthier voices, those more affirming voices. And a lot of it's our own self, but then a lot of it is is reaching out to family or friends or people that are that care about us that are in our lives. There's so many different ways and different places where we can find those larger voices to listen to. Well, yeah. I mean, that's empathy and that's community. Isn't that what we do? Isn't, among other things, we are in the, you know, actors are professional empaths, professional feelers. And so going forward, um, what is the main voice now that's in your head and, and what propels you forward? I certainly think it has something to do with ambition now, but with the mental health conversations that I'm trying to have with the queer-minded conversations that I'm trying to have and build a successful career for myself in the arts, I've just started to look outside of myself. I'm wildly fascinated with stories that maybe they are about mental health, maybe they're not, but they have to do with other people and working with other people. And I think that's why producing has been something I'm so passionate about as of late. I get this kick like no other when I bring talented artists that I personally champion, that I love and adore, and I know that they can do good work, and I get to bring them together, and we make something exponentially better than any of us have created individually before, because we as artists are making each other better. That's amazing. And that's honestly, even with, you know, the Instagram, like the <laughs> right. the, the photo shoots that I've done, my favorite part about them is seeing the end product. Those are all multi, multi-artist, multidisciplinary, multimedia things that I've worked on. I bring on costume designers that I went to school with. I bring on makeup artists that I've seen their work from afar and just geeked out over. Mm-hmm. I work with photographers that have an amazing eye, and I can pair them up and bring them all into one project and watch them do amazing work. That's the big voice in my head right now, which is why I've launched right into producing the next film, because... I'm realizing, oh, this is a giant part of my identity as an artist, bringing other artists up. Yeah. I will just be honest for myself. I think that's something that I struggle with mm. is, is, that, is that jealousy factor. When I, I mean, I can appreciate other people's art, especially when it's not something that I do. Sure. Whether it's like a, a costume designer, a dancer. There are certain artistic forms that I just don't know anything about. Mm-hmm. But things that I think I can do... And then I see someone else succeeding or someone else getting the opportunities and I'm not there and I haven't reached that level. The jealousy, it's hard for me to, and this is awful to say, but I have seen shows that friends of mine are in and I love the show and they're so talented, but it's hard for me to like 100% gusto love it because I'm like, I want to be doing that. Why can't I be up there? And I know that's my own voice. In, in me that's going there. Fair, but I think that's everybody. I mean, let, let's let not forget that that is an unfortunate but very real part of our industry. The comparison. Um, you're, you're literally going on, you know, many, many, many job interviews a week up against people that are just trying – you're all – just trying to be the best possible human for the job, the best possible representation of a character. Like, of course, you're going to compare your, compare yourself. I have that, too. I think mm-hmm. every artist has an element of that. I think that in whatever way works for you, you do have to find a way to not just get over the jealousy. You don't get over anything, but work through it and find a way to be actually, even if it's just a little bit, passionate and proud of whoever you're going to that show say to support yeah 
I struggle with it greatly. I'm not going to you know pretend that I don't. Um, but I found that again, my work, my life, my anxiety, my everything gets better when I'm able to turn on the empathy just a bit more and celebrate another artist that I know maybe personally or not for doing something, accomplishing something great. And hey, if you see somebody in a show and you say, I can do that better, wonderful. Find your way to that stage. And I know that's such a arbitrary thing to say, but for me, it was making my own movie. Mm -hmm. I needed to ask permission from absolutely nobody to do it. Right. Or you, everybody has a different avenue that they can approach, uh, use to find their way. But I, I do believe that if you're going to be in this industry, you have to learn a crap ton about yourself, more so than I think anybody realizes when they first get into this industry. And there's, there's a certain discipline, there's a certain work ethic that I think, I know for myself, it took me a few years to kind of figure out, oh, that's how you do that to reach that next level. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh, I need to be rehearsing this, or I need to be ahead of the game. Like the mere concept of there's a show out there that I want to do to learn that role and the music around it and be familiar with that role so that when the time comes and so I audition, ready. to already be ready. Like instead of waiting for, oh, now I got the audition, now I'm going to learn it. There is uh, nothing that compares to being ready. Yeah, And I believe, yeah. I, you know, honestly, and I'm going to, quote her because it really hit me. Kate Lumpkin is a casting director um, here in the city. And she, you know, I just I adore the way that she talks about the industry and the way that she um, uh, she makes so public, especially on the social media, her experience being behind the table. And it was a quote that she posted. And I think it was be ready, be oh so ready, because when it comes, it's going to come quick and you don't want to miss it. And and it, the simplicity of that is so true. We we want this singular thing so badly to be on that stage and to be the best possible performer we can be, right? So if that's what you want, be ready. And I'm going to, it's another quote that I'm thinking of that I don't know who posted this, but um, patience is not just about waiting. It's about, it's about what you're doing while you're waiting. Yeah, yeah, so absolutely. So while you're waiting, get yourself ready in whatever way that excites you so that when the opportunity comes, you can in fact jump on it. I don't know if there's a, a more distilled down way to describe, I think, what we go through on the daily, mm -hmm. which is just getting ready for that opportunity. Yeah. I mean, most of our job is auditioning as opposed to performing because mm -hmm. we audition far more than we'll ever perform. Sure. And so, as as you said, part of that audition is then getting ready. That's the other 50%. Mm -hmm. You get ready, you get ready, you keep getting ready. Okay, audition now. Yeah. And, and then you're you're there. Absolutely. Mm. I love that. I love that. Well, Misha, this has been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. This has been so fun. I can't believe it's ending. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, the conversation isn't quite over. Check out the next Final Five episode with Misha as he continues to open up and reveal more about himself and his story. For more on Misha, look in the show notes for ways you can follow and keep up with his work. And if you're battling any of the issues we talked about today, you'll also see links to resources that can help you find direction and guidance. As always, thank you for joining me and Misha today. Please share this podcast with anyone you think could benefit from this conversation. Let's get together again next week as we talk more about why I'll never make it.